Father, we do ask um, just for grace to be faithful in the, the spheres of life you've placed us, um, in the areas of life, Lord. Help us to be courageous. Help us to know how to speak of you. Um, help us to love you, to uh, delight in you such that it just pour forth from our lips uh, your excellencies and what you have done for us. So, Lord God, we, we praise you and thank you. Uh, we just ask for this morning as we talk a little bit more about um, how we've gotten the scriptures before we transition next week to talking about how to read the scriptures. Uh, Lord, we just pray that there would be some clarity. And Lord, just thank you how you have preserved your word such that we have a faithful copy in our laps today. Lord, what an amazing thing. And we thank you and we praise you. Pray you bless our time this morning and uh, be with people as they're still arriving and as uh, we are preparing for the gathering of your people here um, in the main service shortly. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today is the, the intention is this is the last um, kind of um, week of you know what we've been doing of talking about how we've gotten the scriptures to, as a foundation for what we're going to do next and how to read the scriptures. So. Um, that's the aim in all of this, is, is we want to talk about how do we read the scriptures, but it is helpful to know how are they produced. So we started with inspiration and how the scriptures are produced via dual authorship. It is God's word and um, it, it is a word from man too. God used men to write what he wanted to write. And then we talked about um, uh, the recognition of scripture, so canon, how do we know um, how are the books of the canon recognized? And essentially we said, well, that goes along with the idea of recognition of prophets. So uh, each book of scripture is written to a, a, a particular audience, and that audience would have recognized the writer as an uh, authorized and accredited prophet of the Lord, which means the books that he wrote down um, would have been kept as uh, canon, right? Authoritative, that's what we mean by canon, the authoritative um, scriptures. So we talked about Old Testament canon, we talked about New Testament canon, uh, now we're going to talk about preservation. So, the, so we talk about uh, the production of Scripture, the uh, recognition of Scripture, and now we're talking about the preservation of Scripture. And by preservation, we, what we really are looking at is what are the providential means that God has used to preserve his word down through today? Um, what is God's providence? God's providence is really the ordinary things of life. God works through the ordinary things of life um, to do different things in his world, right? Well, you can think about that also in relation to scripture, that a lot of the process of the preservation of scripture is very human, uh, uh, you know, copying manuscripts and all that kind of business. Um, but then you can see through history how God has preserved it. Now, this is, this is, last few, last couple, few weeks, we've, we've, We've been going through the scriptures and kind of showing how scripture recognizes itself and talks about itself. Um, and you can see some hints in the, the, the scriptures of how they were preserved. But a lot of what we know about preservation is kind of through history and the things we can glean through history and historical events. So this one will be kind of history heavy. And the thing is, if you really want to delve into this stuff, there's a lot that you could get into. So I'm kind of giving just the the basic arcs and picture, um, or trying to give you the basic arcs and picture of what happened in history for preservation. And you want to think about that. Um, but in all of that, you want to recognize that, yes, there are very human things happening, like copying things and scribes and manuscript distribution and things like that. But God's working through it to preserve his word such that we can 
have access to it so we can know it, so we can obey it, so that we can be saved, right? Uh, we know God is a communicator. Um, God is cert- He's created all things. He is certainly able uh, to create um, to communicate. He has done that in the scriptures. And then even after the, um, uh, the, the ink is dry on the original manuscript, um, he has provided for preservation so that we can read it through time. So let's talk about the Hebrew scriptures first. The Hebrew scriptures. Now, first thing, let's talk about time span. So... Um, you're talking about the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures being written from, mm, uh, if you're talking Genesis, you're talking 1400-ish B.C. to 400 B.C. And if you believe that Job is the earliest book written, and it's written during the patriarchal period, you're talking 2000 B.C. to 400 B.C. So at any, case, any rate, you're talking 1,000 years of the production of the Old Testament. Okay, um, and I don't know anyone ever seen. I, I wish I would have had a, a been able to have a picture on the screen for you. But you guys, any any of you ever seen like uh, Hebrew script, like the little um, uh, Hebrew letters? Um, maybe uh, maybe you've seen that a couple times. Um, I think actually Joan has a picture in her office that has like some some Hebrew script under it. But actually, the Hebrew script that like if I were to show you like the Hebrew Bible that I I work out of for like study. Um, the script, that's not actually the original script for Hebrew. Uh, you can actually go back, uh, and the, the previous script was something called uh, Paleo-Hebrew, and there's even an earlier script that people think might have been used to write the original scriptures. And you've got to also know that when you, they wrote, at least in the Old Testament, the original scriptures, they just wrote the consonants. Um, so you would have words that are just the consonants and the vowels, there would be, there's still vowels, but they would be just orally spoken. And then there was this tradition that as you read the continental text, they would, the continental text, they would just know, oh, yeah, 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 I know how to read this. Um, I know how to supply the vowels as I'm reading it. So the original, uh, just consonants uh, in the text, and then they would supply the vowels. And then that, that became a tradition that just got passed on orally through time. And then as they're originally written, um, you know, or, uh, you know, you're talking about writing on things like papyrus, which is produced from a a reed that grows by the Nile, or parchment, which is like animal skin that's been thinned out to where you could write on it, or leather, or things like this, not paper. Um, So you got to kind of put put together in your mind's eye, like, just how, um, like, difficult this... this, uh, uh, process is and like the, the the physicality of it we kind of think of just oh yeah they're sitting there with their pen and the piece of paper and they're copying or, or writing for that matter and it's like oh, it's actually a big production uh, even in the copying process so um, it seems like this is there is a hint um, and there's a couple hints but uh, it seems like uh, as, as we look at the preservation of the manuscripts they're copied by scribes and We've seen the scribes in the New Testament. They start in the Old Testament. Uh, it seems like if you read Deuteronomy 17, 18, when it's talking about the king, the king, uh, he's supposed to, when he becomes king, he's supposed to like write out his own copy of the law, the first five books of the Bible. But it says he's supposed to do it in the presence of the Levitical priests, which kind of leads us to believe that um, the, pre- the, the Levites, the priests, are kind of supposed to oversee the copying of the scriptures. That makes sense because you can even see in the, um, in the books of Moses and, and Joshua that uh, 
like when Moses finished, it was put, the book was put besides the ark in the temple. And that kind of carries through, through time that the scriptures were often connected with the temple. You can even think about in Josiah's day when they find the law, the book of the law, where do they find it? They find it in the temple. So it kind of seems like that there is this oversight of the copying of scripture because the original manuscripts were worn out. So there's this, this, um, this oversight from the Levitical priests. And at least some of the hints we get from later writings is that the, the scribes were ridiculously careful and how they copied, right? At least the ones connected with the temple. They're like counting words, like we know this book has this many words, and like the middle word of this is this word, so if you're off, you got to start over, or, you know, things like that, right? So just really, really faithful um, copying process. It seems like that from what we know from later writings talking about earlier habits, and even what you can observe in the manuscripts, okay? And it's also true that um, at least for the peoples um, that were around Israel, um, they were very careful in copying in general. So not just Israel, but just in general in that area, when you have scribes and they're copying, they're very, very careful in copying. Versus like, um, it seems like, at least in some cases with the Greeks, not as careful. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean the New Testament wasn't copied carefully. We'll talk about that in a second. But just to say that um, there, that was just a habit in that world at that time that scribes are, in general, very careful in copying text. Now, even with the most careful... You guys ever tried to reproduce a long document by copying it by hand? You guys ever tried to do that? It is very, very difficult to do. Uh, because what happens? What inevitably happens when you're trying to... You know, you got one text, and you got another text, and you're trying to copy by hand. You're looking over here, and then you're doing this you skip a word, or you skip a line, or maybe you duplicate a word, or maybe you drop a letter, or maybe you misspell something, um, you know, like you can imagine there and there, right? We've got, well, there, there, and there, right? We've got three there's, right? You could imagine interchanging those. Well, the same thing happens when the scribes copied, right? So when we talk about the inerrant scriptures, we're talking about the original produced um, text, Right? versus um, copying, which is a human responsibility in the preservation of God's word, errors can be introduced, and were introduced. And there's kind of basically two types of errors. You've got unintentional errors, uh, so the things we were talking about, similar-looking letters, dropping letters. Uh, you look at it, if you've ever looked at some of the Hebrew script, even, um, like I said, it went through a couple different script changes, and there's some letters there, you're like, really? Those are, those are different letters the first time you look at them? Um, and uh, so there's errors that way. You can drop letters, you can add letters, you can skip lines, you can repeat a word. And so those sorts of things, no matter how careful people were, crept in. Those are unintentional change. Sometimes it seems like in certain copied manuscripts, um, a scribe would um, alter the wording or change things for theological purposes. Sometimes. That's more rare but you can seem to observe it. So sometimes you'll see, well, it's like, well, it looks like the scribe changed this to kind of protect God's reputation or someone else's reputation. So if you're thinking about what we have access to, what do we have access to? We have access to copies. And so what we see in some of these copies is like, hmm, there's an error there. um, Or there's like some evidence that, oh, maybe the scribe either did something accidental or maybe he did something intentional uh, to protect God's reputation. So there's both um, unintentional and intentional errors in the copies, not in the originals, okay? Um, 
and then, like I said, uh, there's a script change. So, um, as you walk through time. So, uh, there was an early script in which it was written, and then by the time you have, like, Israel coming out of the exile, the script they used would um, actually was used um, the Aramaic alphabet script. So, it was still Hebrew, uh, and it was still uh, matching the original, but they changed the way the alphabet they were looking at worked. And there were similar letters that looked similar in the earlier script, and then there's similar letters in the later script, so there's just uh, more opportunities for copying error, right? And then, uh, like I said, originally you had it um, just the consonantal text. Well, what happened through time is that people forgot how to pronounce Hebrew, especially as you get into the after um, the first century, right? Um, As time goes on, so you're talking like 80, you know, 500 to 1,000, People, as the Jewish people are dispersed, people forgot how to pronounce Hebrew. And so then you had people come along, and this happened kind of gradually over time. You can actually see it in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but um, it kind of happened over time where they they put in vowels around the consonantal text so that you can read it right. You know, remember, there's an oral tradition of here's how we pronounce, pronounce the continental text. It's a very stable and then finally, um, the scribes are like, all right, we need to put some vowels in to help people pronounce Hebrew because they're forgetting how to pronounce the text, which kind of leads us up to um, uh, the, the copies that we have access to today. So um, that's kind of, uh, and well, let me fast forward a little bit. So, so you see some of that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, putting in vowels and the scribes copying. And then you've got, um, of course, um, Jesus in the first century, you've got the two Jewish rebellions. There was actually two. So there was one in and around AD 70 that the Romans crushed them. And then they rebelled again, like 50 to 60 years later. Um, And then, um, you know, through that, the temple gets crushed. They get thrown out of Jerusalem. Um, So a lot of the copies, you know, get distributed all over, that sort of a thing. Um, But you see scribes maintaining um, a stable text, a stable tradition of copying the scriptures in the early centuries. And then, like I said, um, you see them kind of finish putting in um, the vowels and stuff that represents the text that we have today uh, between the period A.D. 500 to A.D. 1000. And so that's kind of um, the text that is the base text for, say, your Old Testament that um, like every, basically every, yeah, every English version that's going to translate from the Old Testament is going to translate from uh, basically a manuscript that's based in about 1008 AD. So um, that's, uh, it's called, um, you can even look online and probably see pictures of this, but it's called the Leningrad Codex. Um, and remember what a codex is, it's essentially an early book, but the Leningrad Codex um, is from AD 1008. It represents that tradition of um, the, the, the scribal copying um, over the centuries, over the years. Um, and uh, people will start with that text. And then, they, like I said, there's errors, there's variants. So when you say, well, this manuscript has this reading, and then I've got this manuscript that reads something different because the scribes, um, even as careful as they were, there's errors. Um, then you, you start with the, that, that, that Leningrad Codex, and then a lot of the versions you'll you'll look at each word and say, well, there's a variant here, uh, so I'm going to compare the texts that are available and see what's the better reading. And based on that process, that's how we get the Hebrew text from which our Old Testament gets translated. 
Um, basically, if you think about hand copying and errors, it's like, well, when does that process stop? How do, how do the errors get stabilized so that we don't have errors anymore for like the copying process? Basically, with the introduction of the printing press. Uh, when the printing press gets invented in the 15th century, uh, from then on out, we've uh, essentially stabilized the process of error because now you've got movable type printing press and you just, um, it's very accurate, right? And you're not hand copying, so you're not like looking at one page over to the other. And so basically from the introduction of the printing press to today, um, um, both New Testament and Old Testament texts have um, stabilized as far as you're talking about the, cop the errors produced by hand copying. Okay. Um, other thing that I need to be aware of um, is translations. So we've got the Hebrew text, um, you know, uh, the scribes carefully copying it, those connected with the temple, uh, et cetera, the scribes um, uh, handing from one generation to another, being very careful. And then about the third century BC, so we're talking a couple, three centuries before Jesus. Uh, you have the Old Testament translated into Greek. This is what's called the Septuagint, uh, or the LXX. I don't know if you've seen that before. The LXX, the Septuagint, it stands for 72, because there was a tradition that, oh yeah, we've got 72 scribes and scholars that like translated it and produced what we have. Actually, it's probably, that piece of it is probably a legend, but as far as the production and the translation of the Septuagint, so the Old Testament into Greek, it started with the books of Moses because that's foundational to um, Israel and her religion um, and to our religion too. Um, but uh, um, you've got that being the first document that's translated. So maybe in, you know, you can think of 250-ish BC. And then over the course of, say, the next hundred years is gradually through a lot of different translators um, translating the rest of the Old Testament scriptures and the Apocrypha um, and those, those other books. Um, some, because it's a lots of different translators, um, there's varying quality of translation. So some is very literal, especially if you're spending time in the books of Moses. Usually those translations of the Septuagint are more literal, whereas you get farther and farther away in general. This is a rule of thumb. It doesn't hold true in every case. But uh, as you get farther and farther away from uh, the books of Moses, then it's, you know, maybe a little bit freer of a translation. Um, and so you've got that um, happening. Uh, that's, that's our, next to the Hebrew text, um, uh, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's our next and most important witness to the original text. And that's how you got to think about this. Um, so we'll, you, when you think about, well, how do we get back to the original? Like, uh, how do we, there's all this copying, there's all these errors, there's all this stuff, like how do we get back to the original? Well, the thing is, um, um, you, you talk in terms of witnesses to the original text. If you think about all this copying process, so I've got some Greek manuscripts that translated a Hebrew text, I've got some Hebrew text that was faithfully passed on, uh, I've got some other texts that are at the Dead Sea, right, with all those finds from 1948 and on, all those Dead Sea Scrolls and the the, the findings there. So I've got some, some, uh, I've got some manuscripts there. I've got manuscripts over here. I've got translations of old manuscripts, um, and uh, we call those witnesses, witnesses to the original. And essentially, what you're doing with all of these different manuscripts is you're trying to say, well, I've got this, and I've got this, and I've got this, 
and okay, I can see where they vary, and then um, each one makes a witness to the original, and then from those witnesses, you reconstruct the original. And based on the manuscripts we have and um, uh, uh, what they are, we can reproduce the original with great, um, with great uh, fidelity, with great fidelity. Um, so, for example, uh, like I said, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that didn't happen until, uh, say, 1948 and on, um, and they're still occasionally finding new things um, through, through those. But um, before that, before the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the oldest manuscript that we had for the Hebrew Old Testament was from uh, basically 1000 AD. That was the oldest one we had. So then the Dead Sea Scrolls get found, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are interesting because they're kind of a mixed bag. You've got some texts that, um, that match the, what's, called, what's behind our Old Testament. Called, um, th- that text is called the Masoretic text. Uh, there was these scribes called the Masoretes. Those are the guys that put in the vowels, etc. And they did a really good job in copying, really faithful, really stringent. So you've got a lot of the scrolls uh, from, and remind, remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls, not all of them are biblical manuscripts. There's other stuff in, intermixed in, in them. But at least among those scrolls, you've got some texts that support the Masoretic text. You've got other texts that support the Septuagint, or that at least look similar to the Septuagint, um, etc. So you've got kind of a mixed bag, but remember that the Dead Sea folks, those guys are away from the temple. And remember, the copying process and keeping the text, um, you know, fixed and stable was kind of the job of the scribes connected with the temple. So you got the Dead Sea Scroll folks, like, hating the temple, and we're like, we're going to go out into the desert. So there's even some questions as to regards, like, well, what are those scrolls? Are they actually um, as good a quality as uh, what was connected with the temple? So there's some questions there. However, uh, intermixed with all of those scrolls that were buried... Um, you've got uh, what are uh, you've got scrolls like the scroll of Isaiah. That's like one of the most famous scrolls to come out of the Dead Sea. You can look at Isaiah. So you can look at our Hebrew copy of Isaiah, and you can look back now a thousand years earlier, because the Dead Sea Scrolls and all those findings are from you know the third century BC to the first century AD. So you're talking about moving the manuscripts that you have back a thousand years, and you can see, oh yeah, it's been faithfully preserved. That tradition has been faithfully preserved. So you get some great things like that where you can see, oh, yeah, 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 uh, God has preserved his, um, his scriptures. And we can have confidence that God has preserved the scriptures and that we can uh, recover their meaning. Sometimes it's very hard. Sometimes the errors are very obvious. Uh, you guys know when you send a text, right, and you got, like, the weird, um, like, maybe you accidentally send a text when, like, spell check messed you up, right, and you send a text, and the person's on the receiving end, and you get this like weird text, and it's got a weird word like in the middle of it. And it's like, oh, they probably didn't mean that. They probably actually meant this based on the context. Well, you're doing textual criticism when you're doing that. You're actually restoring the original reading based on what you know about uh, what, what, uh, what, what the person is likely to have written. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about working back to the original reading. And there's ways of doing that. And there's some basic rules. And basically the rules are common sense. If you think about the copying process and what likely is to have happened and not happened and what we can see scribes doing, we, and even looking at translations and saying, okay, well, if they translated this word from the Hebrew, then they're thinking that this, um, this word is behind it. And that might be 
another witness to the original text. And you basically can work backwards from those things to establishing a very faithful um, text. Okay, that's a lot of very kind of highlight level um, stuff for the Old Testament. Now, I separate the Old Testament from the New, and we'll jump into the New here for a second, because the transmission process for the Old and to the New is very different. So basically, if you think about the Old, you've got pretty much, except for the exile, one people in one place, you've got uh, the scribal copying happening in connection with the temple. The exile, of course, changes that. They go to Babylon, and so there's some there's Jewish presence over in Babylon, and then there's presence over in Palestine and all of that, and there's presence over in Egypt. Um, so it gets spread out a little bit, but by and large, you're talking about a faithful, very careful scribal process, pretty concentrated in, I mean, one people in pretty much a pretty contained geographic region um, with, with um, the Old Testament. Uh, things change with the New Testament, but before we move on there, um, I know that's a lot of info and kind of um, some sketchy, again, just a highlight kind of level of how things happened, uh, what questions you want to ask. And like I said, there's lots that you could read on this stuff, um, so, and it's fascinating. It really is quite fascinating, um, but uh, uh, I'm just trying to give you some of the highlights. What do you, what do you have questions about? Eden? We'll get to there. Yeah, because we're going to jump over to the New Testament here in a second. So we'll talk, we'll talk about Mark 16. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, Pat. Uh-huh. So what they did, and you can read, part of this whole process, this, this whole stuff that we're talking about is what's known as textual criticism or lower textual criticism which is, uh, is a science and an art. We, what we don't mean by that is like higher critical stuff that happened in like the 18th century and it's like, well, this was Moses' sources and this happened over time. So we don't mean that. What we mean is, is recovering the original text and textual criticism. But a lot of textual critics, they start with understanding, well, how is this stuff even produced? And so they'll talk about how do you produce a papyrus um, and what does that look like? And then the, talking about the pens that they use. So they would take a, a like, like a little reed and cut, you know, a little tip on it, and then they have ink that they would uh, then write on, you know, papyrus or parchment or whatever it had. And the ink could be of different time periods or qualities or things like that. And even some of those things, like knowing, like, the different types of inks or pens or papyrus helps you date some of the manuscripts. Um, yeah, because you got to think in general... Uh, producing a book or a written text in the ancient world is very, very expensive. Very, very expensive. Um, and so you, um, you, you, you know, it, it, the, the consonants, you can kind of even see this in English to an extent, but the consonants carry the meaning of a word. The vowels are just there to help you pronounce it. Now, that's, that's kind of a rule of thumb, right? Obviously, if um, there are different words you could think of that have the same consonants once you remove the vowels that are like all the same. But what we know or what we can see is, is that, um, yeah, they had the consonantal text, but then you think of um, uh, they knew how to pronounce it, and then that pronunciation tradition they would pass on to the next generation um, and very faithfully. Um, and that's the other thing you got to keep in mind is we're used to, we're a very, um, what's the right way to say it? Uh, we're a very text-heavy culture. 
meaning, uh, or another way to say that, there's a lot of text available um, versus uh, that culture and that time, not a lot of text available. It's not like you have a Bible at home. So you're more keyed into the auditory and you're more keyed into memorization. They're way better memorizers than we were because we don't have to memorize. We can just Google it, um, right? Um, it, there's pluses and minuses to that. Um, but, uh, but uh, you, and so you even have the, the issue of the vowels and the pronunciation. It's like, oh, they're used to that and they know how to pass it on. And so even like the vowels and, um, and what is... When the Masoretes in between 8,500 and 81,000 put in the vowels, they're reflecting an ancient like tradition that got passed on faithfully through the ages. So, yeah. Uh, yes, I don't know you. What's your name? Bruce. Bruce. I was just thinking when you the Yep. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and it's the same word, and it's the same meaning, right? So you, you just got to, um, so there's that, um, that reality, and yet um, we can see God's providence and how it's, it's been preserved through time. So it's just interesting, and Old Testament stuff is just, it's just different than what happened with the New Testament, which we'll get to here in a minute. Cal, did you have your hand up? You mean like the Masora and, and that sort of a thing? Is that what you're talking about? Oh, like verse. Yeah, so verses, you're, you're talking just verses, period, right? Uh huh. Sure, so you're talking cross references in your. It, that is an interesting question because what you can see even, like you look at the Jewish scholars and even um, if, if you look at a, a lot of the printed Hebrew, like scholarly editions that people translate from to the English, there's a lot of notes in like the margins of the Hebrew text that like uh, they know, hey, this word or this phrase occurs five times elsewhere in the rest of the scripture. I mean, you look at what they did without computers, and it's quite amazing, right? So at least some of that understanding of cross-referencing, it's, I mean, they've, they've done that for a long time. If you're talking about things like verse numbers and things like that, that doesn't happen until, like, uh, I can't remember the date, but it's, uh, like, 1300s or 1400s uh, AD, right? So um, no verses in the original. Yeah, you've got chapter differences. There are some. There are verse divisions, but no verse numbers. Um, there are like, uh, you know, you can see in Acts where uh, I can't remember who it is at that point. If it's Peter, he refers to the second Psalm. So there's chapter. You know, they know that things are divided, and they have ways of referring to them. But it's just totally different than what we have um, uh, now. You know, so. Ashley. Um, do you know like Hebrew of the Hebrew text of like vowels? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So that's how they know that it's like the word is broken. Yeah, there's plenty of examples. Yeah, you can there's a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls, like the Hebrew manuscripts, they're vowelless, right? They're just the consonantal text. Um, and, and and things like that. Although you see others in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they're starting to insert vowels in. 
So it's it's just kind of a, a mixture and depends on what the document was and what it was used for and that sort of a thing. So, yeah, Ken. Like a translation? Yeah, there, there's there's um there's a couple books like that out. Uh, I think there's a book I have a copy of it. I haven't read it much. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible. Now, here's the thing: it has other manuscript, it has other documents because you've got the community that's there, right? You have to keep in mind that the Dead Sea Scrolls are not just there because they're connected with a community. Um, you know, you've heard of the Qumran community. Uh, they're connected with a community that was like anti-temple and that they kind of like, the temple's corrupt, the kingship's corrupt, the leadership's corrupt, the priesthood's corrupt, so we're going to go out into the desert and form our own commune. And, um, and they, so they have their own beliefs and their own biases and their own documents. So you read, a, uh, you know, like, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, which is a translation of a lot of those scrolls into English. Um, and you, you've got some of their documents and such too, right? The other problem is, is that, again, what are our, there's debate about what the scrolls are. Like, why did they bury these scrolls? Are they, like, reject scrolls? Because some of them are very poor. Like, what in the world is this? And even, even in a reject scroll, they would bury it out of reverence for the scripture um, uh, that was on it. Uh, is this, like, scrolls that are worn out? Like, they've used them for a long time, and then they're rejects, and so we're going to bury them because we reverence scripture. And then there's even questions of the scribal activity because it's like, well, wait a minute, these guys aren't attached to the temple. Um, and the temple and the scribes there, they're the ones that are kind of responsible for um, keeping the text, right? So the Dead Sea Scrolls have value. They do. They have a great deal of value. It's an amazing find. And yet you got to be careful about what conclusions you draw from them. Um, so even we can see, um, uh, like, uh, like I said, a lot of the... A lot of um, the text, the biblical text there, let's say about 35%, I think is the figure that I read, uh, match what we have as the tradition for the copying that produced our, the Masoretic text that is behind our Old Testament. But then there's other stuff that's like, ooh, is this sloppily copied? This is different? What's going on here? Um, so you've got to take into account the context in which these things are coming from. So you can't just say, Wow, great, we have the older scrolls in the Dead Sea. Let's go with those. Well, wait a minute, you, there's a context to those, and you gotta, you got to pay attention to that. Versus like seeing that, you know, that, that tradition and that, that scribal tradition connected with the temple, connected even through the rabbis in the early centuries and the Masoretic scribes, um, you know, there's a very stable text there. So, yeah, Ken. The Dead Sea? Well, because of the Dead Sea, that Salt Sea, right? Um, in the southern part of Israel, um, the Dead Sea, that's along which where they're found. That's why they're preserved so well. Right, the dryness of the area, etc., allowed the manuscripts to preserve. Because normally when you have a bunch of manuscripts that are made of like papyrus, which is a plant, or like even parchment or things like that, once you put it in a humid context and climate, it degrades quite quickly. Um, and so that's, um, that's even some of the impetus for copying, right? Because you would have these things for maybe 100 years, maybe 200 years, and then it's like, oh, they're starting to deteriorate. We need to copy them again, right? Um, so get out the, the scribe Xerox, and we'll go ahead and uh, keep going. So, yeah. Uh, anything else?
Okay, let's switch over to the New Testament. So, transmission of the New Testament is different because uh, you've got, first, think of just the epistles, well, even the gospels, right? They're written to different audiences in different places, different times, over a broader geographic region. So you've got all these letters. Now, travel was pretty fairly quick, and communication between the churches was, was ready enough. So these things are, you know, we talked about this with canonicity. They're spreading themselves out pretty quickly. But you, you've got a broader geographic distribution. You've also got, um, it's not like every church in copying these things uh, had like um, trained scribes to do this sort of stuff. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. It's expensive to copy a scroll. So sometimes you have scribes that are like, oh, this is a, they're real well trained, they're very careful. And then sometimes you have scribes that are copying a little more sloppily. And you can, you can see that in the manuscripts that we have available to us. So this is a whole different ball game when you get to the New Testament. Now, thankfully, we actually have way more manuscripts, hand-copied manuscripts, um, uh, when, we, when you talk about New Testament Greek manuscripts. Um, but just to suffice it to say, let's just think about this process for a second. So Paul finishes writing a letter. Now, he might have kept a copy for himself, and he might have sent off a copy. So then you've got, like, kind of two originals at that point. But then, you know, over time, you know, you've got letter copies spread all over the world. And then a scribe, when he goes to copy it, he might not just base on one copy. He might have two or three sitting in front of him. And he's looking at them, and it's like, well, this one's reading this way, and this one's reading this way, and this one's reading this way. And then, you know, as skull, you know, he's thinking about, well, what's the best reading? And then he produces another one. So there's, this is not a neat process. This is all sorts of mixture in copying. It's not just that, it's not regular. There's persecution that messes things up. Things get burned, they get lost. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff going on. Um, so when you think about copying the scrolls, especially once you get in the New Testament era in the church, it's not always a neat process, especially in the early centuries. Um, and especially when you got people like the Emperor Diocletian in like, I think it's 303 AD, when he's like, burn all of the Christian documents. And so we actually probably have a, a, a lack of early, uh, early like first, second, well, I don't think we have any document from the first century, but second, we do have some second and third century documents and copies, but um, uh, some of the lack is probably because they got destroyed um, through, through persecution, etc. Now, like I said, though, we're thankful and we are blessed <laughs> to have uh, very, very, very many Greek documents, let alone translations into things like Latin or other languages, Okay. So right now, um, across the world and in different libraries, so it's not like they're all in one repository in a warehouse, um, but there are uh, over 5,000 hand-copied Greek manuscripts. It's, um, now, you've got to keep in mind, uh, it's not like each one of those manuscripts is a full New Testament. It might be a postage stamp size of a scrap of a document that has like one word on it from one place, and that's considered a manuscript as well as a full New Testament. So you count, I've got two manuscripts. The little postage stamp is one, and I've got a full New Testament. That's another one. So you've got to keep that in mind when we say that we have 5,000 of these things. Well, some are very small and fragmentary, and some are very full, and we have everything. Okay? The other thing you've got to keep in mind is how the age distribution. 
So it, of the 5,000-ish, and there's probably, if you wanted to go a little bit more generous, 5,100, 5,300, something like that. Because here's the reality. Uh, I was reading about this this last week. There's like an organization whose the official job is to ca like catalog these documents. Well, they've been cataloging for um, a while, but the problem is that these manuscripts, like I said, they're not just sitting in a warehouse somewhere. They're like in this library, in this library, in this private collection over here, and sometimes they get sold, and sometimes they get destroyed. And so it's actually kind of hard, even though you might have a record for a manuscript, like if you were to actually go find it, um, well, maybe it got sold, maybe it's still there. Uh, so it's, it's actually a fairly interesting process and in, in like where all these things are. It's quite fascinating, actually. A lot of interesting history. But then there's also the age distribution. So if you talk about those 5,000, let's just use that as a round number, hand-copied Greek manuscripts, let's say 80, I think it's like 83% are from later than 1,000 AD, right? So if you use 1,000 AD as kind of your benchmark, 83% uh, of the manuscripts we have are after 1000 AD, okay? And then as you get closer and closer, as you would expect, as you get closer and closer and closer to the first century, we get fewer and fewer and fewer available manuscripts, and they become more fragmentary. Um, so, for example, um, like the Gospel of Mark is actually one of the, as far as early manuscripts, as far as early manuscripts attesting to it, we have some, but it's actually pretty poorly attested in very early centuries. And then we have it later on, right? We have all of that, that history. Uh, but then, like, the Gospel of John is well attested. And so it's just interesting even to see different books, how they're copied, and all of that. You've got a lot more Gospels, because um, then you do a lot of the, in the early centuries, as far as manuscript attestation, than you do others. Um, Etc. Uh, so there's, there's, it's not just, uh, we, sometimes you hear people throw out terms like, yeah, we've got 5,000 Greek manuscripts. Well, it's true, but um, you, it's not like you're using all 5,000 of those to produce uh, the base text that goes behind our Greek New Testament. It would be a, it would be a monumental task, right? So uh, again, this is, there's, 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 uh, there's science and art uh, to working back to the original meaning, right? Uh, which is what we call textual criticism. And uh, even, even when I, let's say I'm looking at a text in Matthew, so I'm looking at a text in Matthew, I look at my Greek Bible, and I can see, oh, there's a variant there, there's a variant there. And um, they've, no, there's, they've, uh, sometimes you, I'm going to throw out these statistics because sometimes you hear them from opponents. Um, the, the estimates are you've got 400,000 or up to 500,000 variants in the Greek New Testament which is more variants than there are words in the Greek New Testament. And you're like, how do we even know then? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. So that's like this guy named Bart Ehrman. You might have heard of Bart Ehrman. He's a New Testament textual critic. He used to be a believer. Well, he didn't actually used to be a believer. He was a professing believer, and then he walked away, and now he's like kind of pushing back on all this stuff. But he'll throw that statistic out. There's 400,000 variants in the Greek New Testament, and we've only got 138,000-some words in the Greek New Testament, period. So how can we even know? And what's silly about that is that a lot of the variants are spelling differences or like word order. So then you chop out a bunch of those 400,000 pretty quickly. Um, and then you get down to like, well, and this is true to an extent of the Old Testament as well, right? Um, a, a lot of them, um, m most of them, uh, they don't even have, even if they're viable in the sense that they're well attested, because you could have some screwy like, um, whoa, what's going on there in the text, right? 
and it's like, oh, we can tell that that's, a, that's, that's not legitimate. Um, and so it's not even a viable um, variant. Of the ones that are like um, viable, and a lot of them don't even change the meaning. So even if you switch the word order, or even if you, that's what you gotta think. Like an omission of a text, like you might omit a verse, and that kind of a variant is counted the same as like a spelling difference. Well, those are of a totally different nature, right? Uh, that you got to keep in mind. Um, but most, like, once you boil it all down, the ones that are even viable and that change meaning, uh, or you know, have some some theological weight to what it's going to change, the very very few. Um, now, Eden mentioned Mark sixteen. So um, I don't know how many of you know um, that the ending, if you, if you turn to Mark 16, um, 9 through 20, uh, every English Bible that I'm aware of will print Mark 16, 9 through 20, and yet it'll probably have either a footnote or brackets or double brackets around it. And then you'll read in the footnote that says um, a lot of the early manuscripts don't have Mark 16, 9 through 20. And then you look at like the manuscript attestation for Mark 16, 9 through 20, and it's very um, poor. And so probably what that allows us to do is to say Mark 16, 9 through 20 is probably not originally part of Mark. Um, and, you know, there's, there's things you can look into that, um, that, that talk about that. But here's the great thing about that is that that's, that's evidence of we have, God has reserved enough manuscripts and enough uh, stuff such that we can even determine that. And that and the, uh, the woman caught in adultery in John, so the end of John 7 and the first part of John 8, it's like John 7, 50-something through uh, John 8, 52, you're going to see the same thing. And again, that's, that has even worse attestation than Mark 16, 9 through 20. So it's probably not part of the original either. But again, those are like the two biggest in the whole New Testament. Everything else uh, is basically, uh, is, is really stable. Uh, we are way better off than other ancient manuscripts uh, and ancient texts. Um, and so we have a faithful rendering uh, of, of the New Testament. Yeah. 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 What's his name? Oh, yeah, Michael Kruger. Okay, yeah. 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 But um, one of the questions was raised, so did you preach that one? Nope. Because nope. I, I would not preach Mark 16, 9 through 20, and I, and I, and I would not do um, John 7, 50 through, because I just don't believe they're part of the original. Now, they could be early, they could be, um, you know, people debate about them, but, um, but, um, they're pretty assuredly not part of the original. So what I would do instead is preach a sermon on God's preservation of Scripture, and I would talk about it. Right? It's like, well, why is that in your Bible? And I would try to give some indications of, well, this is God, in God's providence. He has preserved um, uh, you know, enough of the manuscripts that we, could, we can see this is original, this is not. So with a high degree of confidence. So, yeah. The reason I'm telling you guys all this, right, is sometimes if you've never heard this stuff before, you get freaked out. Like, what? You know? And really, once you work through it, you just see, oh, this feels very human and very ordinary, and yet we can see how God has worked through these ordinary means to give us a faithful and 
uh, you, we can be confident of what we have in our Bibles and what our translations are based on um, as, as, as really faithfully and well-preserved. So, yeah, yeah. Um, there's more I could say, but um, uh, that's kind of the basics. Um, any any question, other questions? Okay, so um, if you want to know more, um, I don't have one particular, I wish I had one particular book that I could just point you to and say, hey, go read that. I don't, I pick, you know, I'm, even for myself, I'm still learning a lot of this. I love this stuff. It's kind of interesting. It's just fascinating to me. But um, reading from all over, there is a book coming out that I'm really interested in. It's coming out in October from Crossway, and it's called Scribes in Scripture. And I've already got it on pre-order. Um, um, and uh, it's from a couple, uh, let's say, up-and-coming scholars that you know talk and work a lot, a lot about this stuff. And I think it does a lot of what we've already done. It'll talk through, I don't know if it talks through inspiration, but it does talk through the copying process, and it talks through the canon. And there's, a, there's other books that do that too, um, but it's just helpful to know. Um, and if you ever hear someone say, well, you know, it's been hopelessly corrupted, and they've got so many variants, we can't even possibly know what it's saying. There's a lot of popular stuff out there that says that kind of things. And it's just not true. Um, yes, there's variants. Yes, there's differences in manuscripts. But um, we, can, we, um, we have sufficient warrant and evidence to say, yeah, what we have today um, faithfully represents the original, right? So you ask about inerrancy, right? Um, uh, is what we have in the inerrant word of God? Yes, insofar as it matches the original. And we can reproduce the original with a great deal of confidence. So we can say, yeah, what we have is God's word in, in our laps. Yeah, Pat. Mm -hmm. Yes. Exactly. So, there, there are like things like, um, you know, you think of old works like, uh, there are several that get listed, but even things like uh, the, you know, like history of Julius Caesar, other histories, Thucydides, Herodotus, like, uh, the, there's. There is, um, sometimes um, those statistics need to be updated. So they're continually finding like New Testament manuscripts and they're also finding these other manuscripts. And sometimes what happens is uh, an apologist will quote the updated figure for the New Testament manuscripts, but an old figure for, the, um, for these other works because they're finding new manuscripts for them too. So you gotta be fair, you gotta be fair, right? But even so, it is, we have far and away way more, better evidence um, and usually, like, it's not even questioned with regard to those other offers, whether we can, um, you know, reconstruct a, a faithful representation of the history. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, Robert. Robert, right? Bruce, sorry. Bruce. Uh-huh. Yeah, it can. It just depends on what manuscripts you have available, how much gaps you have, all that kind of stuff. So it just depends on what you're looking at. So, yep. Yeah, David. The, uh, 
Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, you can proclaim the gospel without having the scriptures, right? Yeah, you can. I mean, they did it in the early church. So you can proclaim the gospel without the scriptures, but the basis for all that we believe and how we act, right, is the scriptures. So, yeah. Um, now, there's still, uh, if you read in... Um, the reality is that preservation is a human act that we need to take faithfully. It's a responsibility that we have. So we can't just say, ah, God will preserve it no matter what, right? Well, um, no, we actually have a responsibility to faithfully preserve Scripture. That's a human act. We need to be dependent on the Lord. But God does, in his providence, through those sorts of human means, preserve his word and has. So that we... Sure. Because if I can share the truth, like if I share the gospel with someone, right, what is the gospel? The gospel is that God is holy, that, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, so you're, usually when we proclaim the gospel, we're not verbatim necessarily citing scripture, although sometimes we do, and that is good to do. So I'm not saying it's not good to do that. I'm just saying that you can faithfully proclaim the gospel without the scriptures. Right, because the early church did so without having uh, quoting verses necessarily, right? Sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't, so. Right. Right. Obviously, it's way better to have scripture. That's not what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> you want scripture, <laughs> but... No, I mean, like, that, that verse that you're quoting in, in Romans, right, what is Paul saying? He's talking about the ministry of the gospel, and often, you know, even that idea of the word, when you see that, um, that when Paul's talking about it, he's normally, I would say he's normally referring to the word of the gospel itself. So he's not necessarily thinking of the written word or the word, you know, the written um, scriptures. He's thinking about the word of truth, the gospel um, that is going forth verbally. Um, and you got to think, right? Like who, those people, uh, the early Christians, right? You've either got eyewitnesses or they heard it from eyewitnesses and those eyewitnesses have passed that on to them such that they are able to proclaim it. Well, obviously once we get farther and farther away, we need something written down, which God provided for us, right? Which is the foundation for our beliefs. So I'm not saying that scripture isn't essential, um, or that we shouldn't hold on to it. It's just that you can proclaim the gospel without it. So, okay, Julian, we should probably go to prayer. Well, so first, 
you would have to say, well, what are they basing it on? Uh, on right? Like if you, that's the thing. Like there's a proverb uh, that talks about uh, when someone presents their case, it seems right until someone else. Um, and so that's what you got to do. Like is fairly and accurately look at the the evidence and the things that we have. And there's a certain there's a certain it's not only that because everyone reads evidence through bias, right? We have bias, so does the other side, right? Because everyone has their presuppositions that are going to color how they look at the evidence, right? But um, uh, if, you, if, if you have a uh, predisposed bias to deny miracles or the miraculous or that God can speak in the world, right, then you're already predisposed to say, well, this is just a human document. It's full of errors. Um, and so, uh, so, so you kind of have to say, well, okay, what did they say? Sure, well, we can talk about what they said. But then let's talk about the other side. Did they talk about this? Did they talk about that? Um, and, well, they already have a presupposition. I do, too. Um, but what most, um, uh, what most matches what we see in the world. And the reality is, right, um, God, never, not, God never calls us to go into neutral ground and say, well, just weigh the evidence and then figure it out, right? He commands belief. And so we never surrender that. We always speak um, in accordance with the truth and the way God has spoken in the world, right? But you can see um, how, um, like in a situation like that, um, um, you know, that someone who um, is an unbeliever, right, who is predisposed to believe the opposite, right, it's just going to, you just understand that's going to color that, that presentation, right? There's reasons, there's, uh, there's evidence and things we can look at, right, but there's, there's a sense in which you can never, you can't change that person's heart, uh, no matter how much truth, no matter how ev- much evidence you give them, unless God is speaking. And how does God change lives? It is through speaking the truth of God's word, which kind of goes back to sharing the gospel, right? Yeah, I do want to um, read the scriptures with you. I do want to proclaim uh, and point verses to you, because we do know God uses his word through the spirit to change his hearts and lives. So, All right, let's pray, and then you, if you have more questions, we can talk. Father, we thank you that you have preserved your word, um, that it is a faithful word, that it is worthy of our confidence because of what you have done through history um, and preserving it through your providence, and we thank you. We pray even for the, sh- uh, the short time we're going to come together and we're going to, um, we're going to sing the gospel and we're going to uh, preach the gospel, and we're going to talk more about the gospel, and we're going to talk about how your word speaks to family and all of it. Lord, we pray that you would bless that time. We pray for understanding. We pray that you would keep our hearts soft, Holy Spirit, and guard us from hardness of heart, guard us from unbelief, um, and help us to keep believing and trusting you and loving you and obeying you. Uh, thank you for this time this morning. In Christ's name, amen.